Welcome to Hill Country Institute Live. I'm Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and I thank you for being with us today. We seek to bring you together with Christian leaders who are actively and creatively addressing important issues of our day. We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to hear past programs and to experience audio and video from our conferences on faith and culture issues, including art, business, racial reconciliation, human trafficking, and more. You can also listen to this program and past programs on your podcast app at Hill Country Institute Live. We also ask for your consideration in supporting the program and the ministry of Hill Country Institute. You can donate online at hillcountryinstitute.org or you can call us at 512-680-7993. That's 512-680-7993. We appreciate your help in paying the radio station to stay on the air. Our special guest today has a fascinating story of God's call on his life and a change of career plans to serve our Lord and his people. Ben Lowe is the son of missionary parents. He was born in Singapore and spent most of his early life there. Ben went to Wheaton College with a passion for Jesus and with the intention of becoming a pastor or perhaps a medical missionary. His parents encouraged him to study science, so he enrolled in environmental studies and earned his degree in environmental studies at Wheaton. We'll let Ben tell his story of how God drew him into the ministry of creation care. At Wheaton, he co-founded and led a campus chapter of Arasha, an international creation care ministry, and now he's board chair of Arasha USA, their USA affiliate. Ben's a longtime leader in encouraging and equipping Christians to care for God's creation. He was a contributor to the book, Christians, the Care of Creation, and is the author of Green Revolution, Coming Together to Care for Creation and Doing Good Without Giving Up. Ben has studied environmental systems around the world, including the Gulf Coast of Texas and Lake Tanganyika in Africa, and he's published several papers on his research, as well as a recent chapter in a new book on wildlife research techniques. He's a frequent speaker on college campuses and to Christian groups interested in creation care, including Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, Regent College, and Kew Commons. He's now a Ph.D. candidate in the School of Natural Resources and Environment at the University of Florida. He's a Harvey Fellow, which is a prestigious award from the Mustard Seed Foundation, which provides financial support to Christian students who are pursuing graduate studies at premier institutions in fields considered to be underrepresented by Christians and who possess a unique vision to impact society through their vocations. Ben, thank you for your dedicated service to the body of Christ, and welcome to Hill Country Institute Life. Thanks, Larry. It's good to be with you. And that was quite a walk through part of my life there. <laughs> well, you know, that's the condensed version. I mean, I hope we can kind of flesh some of those things out uh, while we're talking. Uh, I, I just love your story. It's so, it's so interesting to, to see all these pieces and how God's still weaving them together. So it, it seems that uh, God called you to, to a ministry where you've got great passion and energy. But I think to, to really uh, understand you and your life, we kind of need to go back to learning a little bit about your family and, and growing up in Singapore. Sure. Yeah. The um, president of Wheaton College, when I was a student there, had a quote that he um, used a good bit in public, and it was, you have a plan, God has a plan, and yours doesn't matter. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of how I feel about my life. I'm a, I'm a big planner. 
I, I like to plan and I like to think through things ahead of time. And then it always seems no matter how much I plan, um, just things materialize that weren't on my radar at all. And it's a, it's a question of trying to understand how God is leading on any different day and then um, trying to be faithful and following. So life has been certainly been a very unexpected adventure for me. But yeah, you're right. It began in Singapore. I was born there. My mom is Malaysian. Malaysian Chinese, and my father is uh, Caucasian American, but they were teaching at Singapore Bible College. They were training pastors from across Southeast Asia. My father taught in the theology department. His uh, specialty, his PhD is in New Testament theology. He did it under Leon Morris. Uh And then my mother uh, taught in the Christian education department there, and she got her degree from Gordon-Conwell Seminary here in the U.S. So that's where I grew up, in this little island nation state, um, and I spent a lot of time also in Malaysia, which is just a bridge away from Singapore, where all my relatives were, all my cousins, and my mom's uh, hometown of Malacca, so I got to spend all the holidays up there, like Chinese New Year and Christmas and things like that. Oh, well, it's great to have that kind of connection, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, in reading your, your book, you described yourself as on fire for Jesus when you arrived at Wheaton. Um, and, you know, what, what were you thinking you would do? I've, I've got some sense of that. But when you, when you arrived at, at Wheaton, how did you see your future? And, and tell us about some things that happened that maybe gave you a little bit different view of what that future might be. Yeah, well, there, you know, as, as someone who grew up in the church, my faith journey um, is is probably familiar to a lot of other folks who grew up in the church and that there wasn't one specific moment that I decided to follow Jesus that I can point back to a very precise time uh, around. But there have been different steps in my life where I saw God um, intervene in in very powerful and meaningful meaningful ways for me. So one of the first uh, steps was when uh, I was probably five or six and I was um, very anxious. For some reason, it hit me that I was going to die one day, and I, I was worried about it, and I couldn't fall asleep that night. And so my mom found me, and, and we chatted about it, and she told me, well, if you follow Jesus, you don't have to worry about what happens when you die. And so she helped me pray to receive Jesus as my Savior that night. And then the next step, um, this is probably a longer answer than you had bargained for, but the, the next step was when I was 16, um, and I grew up kind of in the shadow of my parents' faith. Uh, through much of my life. But when I was 16, there were a set of circumstances around me that helped me to understand in a very personal way that evil is real in the world. And so is good. And I wanted to be on the side of good. And so I wanted to be on God's side. And so I started to take my faith very personally and very seriously. And so that led to um, my family moving. When my family moved to the United States, I was 16 years old and finished up a couple years of high school here in the States. Um, and that was when I was starting to think about college and our, the church my father was pastoring at the time, a Chinese church outside of Boston, mm-hmm. had a missions conference. And, and I was really moved by one of the speakers, Ajit Fernando from Sri Lanka, who was sharing about ministry during the Civil War in Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. And um, whatever, I don't really understand what happened. All I know is, is God used that conference to really get my attention. And I wanted whatever happened with my life, I wanted to be fully devoted to Christ. And so that's why I chose to go to Wheaton College, mm-hmm. because I thought, um, well, Wheaton's a great place to prepare you for ministry. And, and as you referenced earlier, at that time, my understanding of ministry 
was more in the line of this traditional model of, okay, you become a pastor or you go into missions. And if you want to do science, you go into medical missions. And my parents wanted me to do science. So that's kind of the path I I thought I was going to be on. Uh, And I showed up at Wheaton and a couple of things changed that. One is I realized um, I didn't like medicine enough to be a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) You got to be pretty committed to that stuff. Organic chemistry took it out of me fast. Uh, but I still liked science and I still, you know, I grew up with this deep interest in and love for God's world and all the creatures in it. And uh, that was very much separate from my faith throughout much of my childhood. I loved the outdoors, but I, um, it was more kind of on the side. It was more a hobby or a leisure thing. Mm-hmm. But it was at Wheaton that um, the, the education there really helped me understand a couple of really important things. The first is that as Christians, we're called to be stewards of God's creation. We're created in the image of God for the very functional purpose of caring for God's world and representing God in that world. And so I saw my interest in the environment was actually a foundational part of who I was made to be as a person and as a child of God. Um, And then the second piece that was really instrumental was learning in a number of my science classes that a lot of the major challenges we're dealing with in the world today, including challenges in the places I grew up with pollution and deforestation and wildfires and things like that, these environmental problems are not just environmental problems. They're also people problems. And if I'm called to love God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength and to love my neighbor as myself, working on environmental issues and protecting God's creation is one excellent way that I can be faithful to God in the world today. Yes. Well, and, and I know at Wheaton, uh, you have high quality programs in so many areas. Uh, we'll talk about the science building in a little bit because there, there's, I have a connection there with, with what you wrote about the science building to come and us actually being in it later. But, uh, you, you also had the opportunity at Wheaton to be around some really uh, exceptional theologians. And so when you're thinking about the environment and you're thinking about Scripture, you know, does, does Scripture give us a basis for uh, caring for God's creation? It absolutely does. And this is what really got my attention because I grew up in the church. And so I've, you know, I, I can't tell you how many sermons I've sort of slept through. It's in the thousands all throughout my life. And all the Sunday school classes I went through, every week I was in church. And yet there was no connection between my passion for the environment with my love for God uh, until I came to Wheaton. And they, the, the theology Bible departments there helped me make that connection. And really, it's all straight through the Bible. The Bible begins with the account of God's creation of the world. And it ends with the uh, description of the of God's renewed creation and God coming to dwell with his people and us continuing to rule the world together as God intended from the very beginning. And from so from Genesis 1 right up to Revelation 22 and all the way in between, we see so much about God's vision for the world, God's love for the world, which includes humans, but it's not just limited to humans. Everything that God made was good, was very good. And God is still committed to everything that he made and still as we read in passages like Colossians 1 still actively sustaining everything he's made and all these things remain part of his redemptive purpose and I mean, we could go on and on and on and I I, yeah. I think you probably had other guests who dug into this but the first 
<clears throat> I don't think it was um, necessarily a coincidence. The first sermon I heard on a Sunday morning while visiting a church that later became my home church at Wheaton College was from Dr. Vince Bako, a professor in the theology department, and it was from Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to care for it. And it was like this blind spot had just been identified for me and, and I started to understand and started to see scripture in a whole new light. Yes. Oh, I have had similar, a similar experience with the Labrie teaching with Francis Schaeffer and, you know, he wrote a, a, a book about pollution and about how we're to care for things. But, but it, but it's, it's even deeper than that. I mean, that's the, 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 you, you don't need much more than Genesis really to give a sense of what our calling is. Cause when God put man in the garden, he wasn't fallen, was he? And he gave him responsibilities to, to steward that garden, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And you mentioned Francis Schaeffer, and that's one of the remarkable things is, you know, I, I grew up in the evangelical church, the evangelical um, strain of, or tradition of the church in particular, and we place a high emphasis on understanding and following scripture. Um, and these issues, these topics, these themes are not new to Christian theology or evangelical theology. They've been written about and spoken about for years and generations, but it's become a more recent blind spot for a lot of the church in the West in particular. Yeah. And, you know, as much as we, um, a lot of our theology influences the church around the world through our missionary and education efforts, then it's also spread around the world. So I think there's a there's a broader blind spot here that a lot of folks are working to help uh, address so that we can be more biblically faithful in the world today. Yeah, well, that that uh, that kind of begs a question, doesn't it? Why why do you think we have those blind spots, or big blind spot? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I I study environmental social science, and so I'm, in fact, that's what I was just doing before um, we got together here. I was in the midst of unpacking a structural equation modeling that one of my colleagues had just run looking at the connection between evangelicals and politics and the environment in the United States. And so, you know, politics is just one piece of it, but I think a lot of the times um, we've become, we talk a lot about influencing the culture, but a lot of times we become very influenced by the culture. And I don't think we always recognize or realize that. And it's incredibly hard to recognize and realize that unless you are in relationship with people from different contexts and cultures who can speak that into your life and, and, and point it out to you, or unless you have a chance to travel or to uh, immerse yourself outside of your own cultural context and see things from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something I'm really grateful for, for my upbringing as a missionary kid, a third culture kid, growing up in a different part of the world and in a very different culture. And then coming to this culture, it's given me a really valuable um, resource to use for understanding the strengths and the weaknesses of blind spots in my culture growing up, as well as my current culture here in the United States. And I think that's part of the beauty of what the church can do is because we're a global body of uh, the global body of Christ is we we're in relationship and we're called to be in relationship with people from across every human and worldly barrier or division that we can imagine. And it's that diversity that really helps us to understand a fuller and more faithful picture of God and the world that God has put us in. Yeah. Amen. You know, that that uh, really calls us to keep our eyes open. I, I know when I travel to another part of the world, uh, 
it's like this is just off a little bit. It's a little bit different, you know, and I have to adapt. I see things. When I come back, I have fresh eyes and I see things at home that I didn't see before. So uh, I think we we need that. We need to talk to the people from different economic backgrounds in our area and understand their issues. We need to talk to people that have different racial backgrounds. That opens us up. And and there's a lot of connection between different ethnicities, different financial situations, and the impact of the environment. And maybe we can talk more about that. But maybe for, for the moment, I want to go back to something at, at, at Wheaton. Uh, you were involved in starting a, a campus chapter of Arasha. And it's an, it's an international creation care ministry. It began in Portugal. And uh, the leadership was from the U.K. And Peter and Miranda Harris have been on our program. And so so is Mark Purcell, the, the leader of Russia, USA. But uh, I'm really uh, what what led you at that point to start this and be part of this environmental ministry? And uh, how did how did that work out? What happened with that on, on the Wheaton campus? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Arasha has certainly become a really important part of my life and, and ministry. And uh, my first connection to it was through Dr. Fred Van Dyke, who was the director of the Environmental Studies Program at Wheaton and then went on to be the executive director of the Osamo Institute of Environmental Studies, which is a Christian Environmental Studies Institute based up in Michigan. Um, and Dr. Van Dyke, uh, Fred, I called him Dr. Van Dyke back then, uh, but Fred um, talked to us about this Christian international Christian organization doing really good work, and he was just getting involved in the board at that time himself. And so he uh, asked if we wanted to do something connected to that group on campus so that we weren't just studying these things in class, but we were also living them out uh, in our lives and, and you, you know, helping to influence and shape our campus culture around these different um, topics and issues. And so a group of us uh, thought that was a good idea, and we started this chapter, uh, and it's still running today. They're doing great work at Wheaton, and they've contributed a lot to to um, a shift, you know, the the growth of Wheaton College's engagement around creation care, and that's mm -hmm. been really exciting to see. Um, and then my uh, ongoing my involvement with Arasha has continued to grow through the years too, and that's been an incredible joy. Peter and Miranda, uh, Peter in particular. I've been mentors to me for over a decade now, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, not that long ago joined the USA board for Russia, which I now get to chair. So I work a lot with Mark Purcell, who's who's visited this show, and then um, I'm about to join the international trustees too. So I just keep keep finding every opportunity I can at connecting with Russia. It's a it's a really wonderful group of people. Well, when when Miranda and by the way, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Miranda and Peter were involved in an awful uh, car wreck, and uh, she passed what, about 18 months ago now, if I got that about right. And uh, just a uh, just under a year. Just under a year. Okay, so it's just a, a, a really gracious lady, and I, I like the Arasha model of working on projects and bringing people together for that. And she said that community develops around projects. And I thought, you know, because she, she really had this vision, not just for saving the estuary in Portugal or whatever you're, you're doing in any in any one. I mean, you're on every continent but Africa, excuse me, every continent but Antarctica. And uh, it, it's not just the project. It's the community that builds around it. And it's a great way of doing ministry. And John Stott said, 
and the developing ministry of Arasha, an exciting contemporary form of Christian mission, has come alive. And I, I just love that quote, you know, from such a, uh, a wonderful leader, and then to know that that was Miranda's heart uh, for, for building uh, community. So uh, if someone wants to be in touch with Arasha, how, how do they do that, uh, Ben? Well, they can visit our website, arasha.org. And it's, so it's a, it's a tricky word sometimes to get. It's Portuguese, and it's A-R-O-C-H-A, and it means the rock. And we're in, as you said, about 20 different countries, and in each country it's pronounced differently. So no one gets it right except the Portuguese probably. <laughs> uh, but we kind of we say arasha or rocha in the United States. It's okay. The important thing is it's a, it's a good group of people who share a common faith and mission um, regardless of how we say our name. And we actually have a good bit of work in Texas. We've got um, some work around um, central part of Texas. And Mark Purcell, our executive director, is based in Austin. And we have a few board members um, based there, too. And we've interacted a lot with groups like Laity Lodge over the years and, and yes. things like that. Yeah, excellent. Yes, I know. I was at a, a conference there with Peter and Miranda uh, and Mark and really, really enjoyed it. Uh, the... Uh, and you have a you have a uh, ranch project in Texas. You familiar with that one? You, you know a little bit about it? Yeah, it is my responsibility to um, know a little bit about everything. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I do. There's yeah, there's some really great work going on in Texas, and, and has been. It's been a, a hub of activity for Russia for a number of years, and. Uh, we're also, you know, uh, in the United States and around the world, branching out. Arasha has always been known as a, a hub for people who love birds and birding, but we're also branching out more on the marine conservation front too. And so that's another opportunity to, to do more work in the Texas Gulf area down the road. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, sure. lots of, there's lots of things. There's local projects, but a, a great way for people to get involved in Arasha uh, as individuals or as churches is through a, a program that we run called Love Your Place, which is an online resource and community hub that people can become members of. And it provides courses and resources to, to help empower people to, to do what it, the name is, to love the places where God has placed them. And that's always been part of Arash's DNA. You know, we care about conserving biodiversity and uh, we believe that God's, the rest of God's creation, not just the human part, but but all of God's creation is inexpressibly, uh, inexpressibly valuable and worthy of care because it belongs to God. Yeah. Um, but even more than that, we believe that humans have particularly meaningful and valuable roles to play here. And so it's, it's something that it's a really empowering vision for for humans to be involved in this good work that God has created and called us to do. And so Love Your Place is a great resource to help people understand how they can get started in that and around their own homes and in their own lives. Yeah, and one, one other thing I might mention, uh, Mark led the effort at our church to do a, a physical evaluation and recommend plants to be planted. And, and a lot of, he had, he had input as we were rebuilding a church we had bought. So uh, if you're in a position of trying to evaluate your physical plant, your, your church building and the grounds, what you'd like to do with it from an environmental standpoint, uh, Arasha can really be a, an important uh, team member for you. So uh, that's another reason to, to be in touch. And it, and it brings environmental and creation care down home, really, because that's our, that's our local communities. Mm. 
Uh, ben, you you know, we, you and I share an interest in fish and fishing, and uh, I, I know jealousy is a sin, and I have to confess I've been jealous recently of some pictures you posted on <laughs> Facebook because you've caught some bass that just make me my mouth water, you know. So uh, you got I know you got lots of stories, but but the one thing that's interesting, you've, you've studied fish on the Gulf Coast of Texas, and you've studied fish in Africa, and now you're doing marine work in Florida. So you've, you've got a lot of different perspectives there. Uh, what, would, what would you like for our, our, our audience to know about what you've learned in your research? And I don't mean just, just fishing, but about fish and the <laughs> ecosystems and how they're doing. Uh, yeah, I do, I do love fish. It's, a, it's a, a bit of a weird obsession that I think only birders can fully understand. I, you know, it's just... It's, I don't know what it is about the fish, but I, I love all things fish. I love studying fish. I love keeping fish in, in home aquaria. I love eating fish. I love catching fish. It's just, it's a, it's a thing. Um, and sure. that was one of the, the perks of moving to Florida for graduate school is I got to be in, uh, in a state that's renowned for its fishing and renowned for its bass. So, you know, the bass you, you see me catch in Florida are much bigger and they grow much faster than the bass that I used to catch up in Illinois. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm grateful for that. You know, I think to, to your question, though, um, one of the things that I've learned is I started studying fish uh, because I, I, found, I found fish fascinating. But the more and more I did, the more I realized if we want to protect fish, or if we want to protect birds, if we want to protect any part of God's creation, then we also really have to understand and work with people. Uh, because at the end of the day, fish just want to do fish things. That's, you know, that it's really the people who have an impact on the health of these systems and who are dependent on these systems as well for their livelihoods and their survival. And so that's what motivated me to shift. Uh, I think there's a lot of great biological work to do, but there's a lot of great social science work to do as well to understand how people perceive God's world and to understand how people relate to God's world and then to figure out how we can uh, shape people's interactions with God's world so that there will be fruitful and faithful and in line, you know, and we'll be able to be good stewards. I read a lot of Wendell Berry. Oh, yeah. Uh, and one of the, um, I'm going to paraphrase him here, but one of the things I've learned from Wendell Berry from his writings is you can't practice virtue without skill. And mm -hmm. so it's one thing to say that we should care for God's creation, but how are we going to do that unless we actually understand how it works and understand how people work in it? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a complex interrelationship. And you I read some some of your work about the Tanganyika. I'm probably you know I'm from East Texas. Part of my culture is mispronouncing words. So uh, you know that that beautiful lake. Uh, I've given you, you some challenging ones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, one of the things you were looking at was you know what what if fish production drops off? You know how will people react? So there is that uh, that kind of symbiotic relationship between the fisher and the fish, and We'll get into some of the details uh, about some of the things going on. And, in fact, that kind of leads into some of the things you wrote. You, in, in the 2008-2009 time frame, you were, it was a pretty fertile time for you in writing. You contributed a, a couple of chapters to a book, Christians, The Care of Creation, edited by Lindsay Scott. You wrote a book called Green Revolution. And one of the things that I'm, I'm looking back now, here we are, uh, you know, 12, 13 years later, and one thing you referenced was that beautiful science complex at, at Wheaton College as a to-be-built Leeds 
certified building. Now it's up. It's an amazing facility. I was there working on faith and science with your dean and, and, and some of the biology professors. And, uh, and it's a LEED certified building. And maybe, maybe you might just take one, one minute and say, what does it mean to be LEEDs certified? And why is that important for a building? Sure. That's a certification from the U.S. Green Building Council, if I'm remembering my details correctly. I'm pretty sure that's where it's from. Yep. Um, and and basically, it's they, they provide different pathways uh, when you're thinking about a new construction or when you're rehabbing or renovating an old construction uh, to think about how you can do this building, uh, how you can build in ways that are sensitive to and thinking about or taking into consideration the well-being of the environment. At the same time, you're also thinking about good lighting and ventilation for humans that occupy the building and things like that. So it's really trying to internalize an externality that we all haven't always had the resources and tools to internalize, which is the how we impact the world around us, which is incredibly important. And how the you know we impact the world around us ends up impacting us in return, as you've already noted. Yeah. So I think uh, LEED certification is a it's a, the LEED program is a great resource, and a lot of Christian colleges around the country are taking advantage of it, and you see more and more of the construction projects at these Christian institutions of higher education are coming up with um, LEED certifications or are being built to LEED standards, even if they don't uh, aren't able to pay for the, certi- the final certification process in the end. Yes, yeah, and I think that's great to see that at Wheaton, which is kind of the you know, a flagship, if you will, and I'm not detracting from Baylor or anybody else. It's just that Wheaton has that that great image, and and uh, and they do wonderful science. And that building, and the and the commitment that Wheaton has to science, just shows me, and, and this is near and dear to my heart, that faith and science are not at loggerheads. Faith and science complement each other. They belong together. So many of the great scientists have been Christians and, and just seen the order in the universe as an extension of what they can learn about God. So appreciate that. But back to your writing. You and you and a fellow named uh, Calvin DeWitt, who was an early leader in creation care, in those times you were writing about the things that were of concern. And I've got a, a list I'll kind of run through, and we can we can deal with any of these you you want. And I'm thinking, you know, how how does now compare to then? How do our issues now compare to then? Are some better or some worse? You know, land land degradation through erosion, solidization, and there's desertification, including conversion of land use from forests and crops to urban uses, deforestation, uh, resulting in degraded soil, diminishing biodiversity water degradation through pollution and leaching of wastes, global toxification due to worldwide contaminants by 70,000 man-made chemicals, uh, cultures that had lived sustainably either being extinguished or threatened. Over 1 billion people lacked an adequate supply of water, estimated to reach 1.8 billion in 2025. Worldwide fish stocks were at their worst state ever, with three-quarters of marine fisheries exploited unsustainably. And if I was going to update the list, I'd say today we have significant air pollution issues. You know, over a third of the U.S. population experienced 100 or more days of bad air quality in 2018. Uh, plastic in the ocean is just massive and growing. There's a big block, bulk of plastic out in the Pacific that's bigger than the state of Texas. And this is a big state. Uh, and we've all got microplastics in us. You know, we eat a, we're supposedly eat a credit card worth of plastic every week. Uh, over half the corals in the world are dead or under duress. And that... And, Talk about fish, you know, over 25% of marine life in the ocean flows through the corals. And as a birder and a fisher, I like both, 
We've lost almost 3 billion birds in our population since the 1970s. So how are we doing? What do you think? Well, that's a bit of a loaded question after reading that list. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all need a nap. Oh, gosh. Um, Well, you know, um, there's a lot to be discouraged about in the world. And one of the things that I think my faith tradition hasn't prepared me well for, to be to be honest, uh, and something I've been struggling with and learning a lot more about because there's a ton of biblical resources here. Uh, it's just we've marginalized it more um, culturally, is the idea of, uh, of grief and lament. Mm. And I think we're, the fact is we're losing a lot of very valuable uh, parts of God's world. And we're seeing a lot of the parts that aren't completely lost still being degraded in, in very painful ways. And that hurts. That should hurt us, I, I think, uh, because this this belongs to our God. And so there is a very natural response um, to need to grieve and mourn these things and to lament them would be the biblical <laughs> biblical way of starting to address them. And not to hide from them, but to, to be willing to face them and tell the truth about them, you know, to name these things so that we can begin to process them as a community. And so that's a big part, I think, of working on environmental issues today is, is grieving and lamenting. It's always done with ultimate hope in Christ and what Christ is doing to make all things new. But it's, um, and Peter Harris, actually, um, my mentor, the, the found, one of the founders of Arasha, uh, he talks about this very eloquently as uh, referring back to the days when he was uh, a parish rector and he would visit people who were dying and he would just sit and be with them and recognize that something good is passing on here. And so there is this ultimate hope, uh, but but it's still a recognition in the present that things are hard and things are bad and there's suffering and, and there's grief. So that's one thing that I think is important for us to recover an ability to do, because if we're not able to really grieve and lament these things, then it'll be very hard for us to tackle them honestly, uh, because it will be just far too overwhelming uh, for us to do so. But the the other um, thing I would say about this this long list in general is, it can be very overwhelming. It can feel very overwhelming, especially when you think environmental problems can be huge problems. Um, when you look at what's happening to the coral reefs around the world, there was just a um, report, a study out yesterday quantifying how much of the corals have been lost in the Great Barrier Reef over the last 25 years or so. And it was ex- it's just incredibly overwhelming. And what am I... Um, even though, I mean, I study environmental science, I'm, I'm training to be more effective as a steward of God's creation. But even, even then, what am I, one person in Florida, going to do to, to help the Great Barrier Reef at all? Like, this just seems like it's yeah. so far out of my uh, control. But I do trust it's not out of God's control. And so that's a really important lesson that I've had to learn is that my primary motivation for doing all these things has to be out of love. Not has, it, it can't be, ultimately, it can't be driven by guilt or shame or fear or despair. It has to be driven by love, love for God, love for my neighbor, and love for the world around me. And if I do that, then that empowers me to do what I can 
to care for God's world, not thinking that I'm the one who's going to save it, because that's idolatry, right? Where we, mm-hmm. When we make it all up to humans. Right. But it doesn't also let us off the hook by saying, well, since God's the one who's in control and not me, then I don't have to do anything. No, it's a, it's a rigorous call to be completely faithful and to always press into that call to be faithful, to daily take up our cross and follow Christ. But it's one in which I don't get to do it out of a sense of futile panic. It's one at which I get to continue to deepen my trust in God, my relationship to God and the world around me and my neighbors. And also, it's, a, it's to put it um, maybe simply or plainly, for me, it's an act of worship. That's what it is. I get to do these things that God has asked me to do because I love God. And in doing so, I am worshiping God. And I'm, I'm continuing to trust and become the person that God wants me to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So when we're taking care of it, we're taking care of his garden. We're taking care of his creation. It, it is discouraging. And, and you know, as a, as a baby boomer, uh, and you're much younger, you know, I, f- I feel like I owe you and a, your generation you know, it's a generational apology because we we haven't taken good care. And uh, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that our generation will be more aware. And I'm hopeful that coming generations will be able to, to clean up the messes we've made, uh, which is which is a sad thing to say. And it, it's, not, it's not I'm not I'm not like self-flagellation here, but it, but it's just a fact that there, there's so much to do, and I, and I intentionally just tried to get that list out there fast, and we can talk about any aspect of it, but the, <laughs> but, but the point is yeah. there, there's multiple ways. And then, you know, our senator, John Cornyn, he also says we, we have an emissions problem, and, and that's, a, that's a very broad thing because from emissions, we, we have pollution and health issues. Uh, we have the heat issues that are associated with a – uh, declining ice mask on both ends of the earth and and in Greenland we've lost uh, over th- well, well over 30 percent of the uh, mass of the glaciers in the world since 1945 uh, just as an example and tundra melt is forcing some Alaskan villages to move and sea level rise is forcing some Pacific Island uh, homes to move and some Louisiana villages Marina California is planning their retreat from the sea New York spending $10 billion to fight sea level rise. Hurricanes are just atrocious now. And they, and they just, it's like overnight, they go from a tropical depression to a category four or five hurricane because the water's warmer. So we've got multiple issues related to emissions. And, and that's, another, that's another wrinkle that, that we didn't, didn't bring up before. But uh, what do we do, Ben? I mean, how do you... You, you're you're involved in this. You're a leader. You, you've thought a lot about it. You know, we're Christians. We mean well. We we want to do well. What do we do as 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 believers in light of all these creation care issues? Yeah, another. That's a, a big question. I, I did want to say thanks for your um, your very gracious and. and um, kind comments uh, about the world that my generation is inheriting. Um, but I think, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of the things ma- that maybe weren't done very well that, that we're being left to deal with. Um, 
but there's also a lot of good that we've inherited as well. And so I did want to note that. And the things that we are struggling with aren't always things that were meant for for bad. They were meant for good. A lot of the things that uh, we've done, a lot of the emissions that we've produced have helped move a lot of people out of poverty and things yes. like that. You know, development comes at a cost. Um, and and it's hard to juggle these tensions in a broken world. Sometimes it's really hard to, to get everything right. We do our best. And so I think, um, I hope my generation more and more is able to be gracious towards the generations before us, even as we grapple with a lot of the challenges that we've inherited, that we also understand the blessings that we've inherited. And, and the moral resources and ethical resources that have been passed down to help us think through how we are to show up and be faithful in the world today. So you, um, you asked me how I think we should respond. It's, it's, um, I think the, I'll start with a big answer and then feel free to follow, follow up with more specifics um, questions. But the, and I, this is on my mind because I just finished working on a, a draft paper with a couple of colleagues that will be coming out in early next year. But I think part of the challenge is that we don't have good, we, we don't know how to really value things well. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of how we structured society and how we run the world is anthropocentric. We have placed humans at the center and humans as the, the judge of the, of the value of everything else. Uh, and, we, and that means often things are only as valuable as they are useful to us or as, as much as we value them. And I think the church has kind of fallen into this trap somewhat too. And, and I say this as someone who got into the in, environmental work because I really was concerned about the impacts the environment was having on people. But at the yeah. same time, I think sometimes we can be very anthropocentric. We place ourselves, humanity, our species at the center of the universe. And of course, as, as I've already touched on once, that's what that's biblically, that's called idolatry. Uh, and what the church is really called to is, is what we in, in the ethics sphere would call theocentrism, which is to put God at the center and to orient ourselves and the rest of creation around God. And it's only with God at the center that we can be in right relationship with each other, with the rest of nature and with um, God himself. And so that's really what I think uh, the challenge is. If you were to take a big picture, look at it for the church a lot and a lot of the world, but mm -hmm. the, certainly the church in America today is that we have to somehow dethrone and decenter our interests and our vision for the world and ourselves from the world. And we have to put God back in the center. Um, and that's gonna be incredibly challenging, but it, it frames the challenge, I think, as an issue of biblical discipleship, which is what it's always been. And that's, I think, one way for our churches to begin to think through how to approach it. How do we understand caring for God's world and responding to the urgent challenges we're dealing with today as acts of biblical discipleship? And as we do them, then also acts of Christian witness. Yes. Yeah. And, and speaking of our, our, our caring and witness, it seems that all these issues fall most heavily on the least among us. If you're poor, you're more likely to live downwind from a manufacturing plant or a refinery, you're more likely to live in an area that floods now because, you know, if you live in the Midwest or you live on the Gulf Coast or you live on the East Coast, the flooding's coming. So it, it, how do we think about 
the least among us environmentally. Yeah, there's a huge amount of um, work that shows that uh, it's what we call environmental justice or environmental injustice, that um, people who are most vulnerable, most marginalized, often um, bear a disproportionate amount of the environmental harm in society and uh, get to enjoy a disproportionately less amount of the environmental benefits uh, that go around. And so that's something, as Christians certainly, that's something that we have, a, the Bible gives us huge amount of uh, resources and, um, and a really robust ethic to care about these things. And that's, that's honestly a lot of the, that angle is a lot of the reason I got into this work in, um, in general. When I was on Lake Tanganyika in East Africa as an undergrad student, I got to be part of this team that was working to understand what was going on at the fishery, even back then. Uh, so you asked about the difference between back then and, and now. Mm -hmm. uh, back then, the fishery was in crisis. Mm -hmm. Now, it's only more in crisis, and it, it's hard to know what the end game is for the fishery there because the population continues to grow rapidly. And so the demand for fish and the demand for jobs continues to skyrocket in that region. At the same time that the ecosystem is collapsing because of shifting weather patterns that are affecting the productivity of the lake. And, and basically, long story short, it means there's less nutrients in the lake, there's le less um, aquatic activity in the lake to sustain these fish populations at the same time that there's a lot more pressure, fishing pressure on the existing populations. And so you get these fisheries uh, that are continuing to be unsustainably depleted. And who is harmed by that? But these people who live around the lake, who uh, aren't in communities or countries that are responsible for the vast amount of the pollution produced in the world, they live very simple lives in, in much of that part of the, the world, but who are bearing these costs from a lot of the pollution that we are producing elsewhere in the world. It hit home really personally for me when I was having a conversation with a local fisherman on one of these beaches. And I think, I think if I'm remembering right, he was, um, he was a refugee, I think from the Congo. So four countries surround Lake Tanganyika, it's Burundi, Tanzania, Zambia, and the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So there's been a lot of insecurity and instability and war conflict and, and therefore refugee movements around this lake. So it's been a tough place for a lot of people for a long time. And he was someone who had uh, fled war and violence and had resettled with his family in, in this part of Tanzania that I was based in. And we were talking and he was telling me, you know, I was, I was asking him about his catch and what he was doing and trying to learn um, how he was fishing and all. And he was asking me questions. He was asking me, uh, you know, my family has fished this lake for generations, uh, but I can't find the fish nowadays. Not like we used to, like what's, what's going on? And I tried to explain because you know, the, the science is, um, there's some really great papers that explain the science uh, of why the fishery is collapsing and how the, the changing in uh, weather patterns in that region is causing the ecosystem to decline in productivity. And I was trying to explain that, but um, I don't have enough Swahili. Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning, but it's not, it's not that good yet sure. to explain that. And so he was very patient, but at some point he just said, okay, okay, forget it. Um, just tell me what I need to do about it. And it hit me. I'm like, there's, there's really nothing 
that you can do about it. And yet you're having to pay, you're having to bear the brunt of the costs of it. And that's incredibly unfair. And it's incredibly um, painful to, to see people struggling with that. And so that was partly how I got more into this line of work that I am, where I study environmental changes taking place and how people perceive them and how people adapt to them. Because I was trying to think of, well, what can I do to contribute to this solution uh, that so many people are struggling with when they bear the brunt of um, problems that they haven't actually created themselves? Yeah. Yeah, that's a difficult thing, isn't it? To, to be the recipient of something that you didn't have the benefit from the gain so much in the first place. And, you know, with uh, emissions, fossil fuels, we, we have seen a great increase in the overall living standard in the world. But this, this cost of increased warmth, increased pollution, uh, those, are, those are very real costs. And I, I'm, I'm always curious what, what people think about what we, what we should do who have thought about it a lot like you have. So, you know, another, another thought is as Christians, when, when we're involved in creation care, we often end up working with people outside the body of Christ. And, and I, I've always felt that it, it makes sense to make allies because when you make allies on important causes, whether it's human trafficking or creation care or, you know, supporting musicians during COVID, whatever, whatever it may be, uh, it gives us a chance to represent Christ in that area. Have you had experience in this way? What, what do you think about uh, creation care as a way when Christians can relate to people who aren't necessarily following Christ? Oh, absolutely. Um, and of course, as a missionary kid, um, I have no problem being in contexts where I'm a minority, where most of the people around me aren't Christians. I have no problem learning from people who uh, aren't Christians. I think there's so many people with such great expertise and wisdom out there that we can and need to learn from, especially on environmental issues, because uh, generally speaking, the church in the West and the church in the United States has really, you know, being a blind spot for us for the last 50 or so years, we we just haven't, um, we have everything we need biblically to lead in this area, but we haven't been leading in this area. And others have stepped in in the vacuum created by the problems in our absence to take responsibility for them. And so I think, first of all, we should celebrate that. We should celebrate it when people do good work, whether they do it in God's name or not. And we should recognize that God works in this world apart from us and apart from his people. God works in creation apart from humans. And so we should we should expect to see God moving and working uh, apart from the church. But then I think we should be really eager as God's people to join in the work that God is doing when it takes place in the world apart from us. Uh, and so that's it's been an incredible joy. I can't tell you the um, the number of really life-giving and, and inspiring relationships and encouraging relationships that I've been able to develop by working in this field. And I've never, I mean, sometimes I think Christians, um, especially if I think, you know, we, we can have these stereotypes of, of anti-religious environmental tree hugger people, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, and we can end up demonizing people who we don't even know. But my lived experience uh, is that 
these people have been some of the most supportive and grateful for me and the work that I do. People outside the church. Yeah. Actually, my experience has been sometimes I struggle more with people in the church understanding <laughs> and valuing what I do and being very critical of me and wondering if I've lost the faith and all sorts of other things like that. And I and I have to spend a lot more time explaining, no, 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 I'm still the person that I've always been. I'm still, you know, I'm doing this because I'm following Christ. And, yeah. and outside, I just get people thanking me for showing up and joining them and and asking me really interesting questions about why I care about this and what does my faith have to say about these issues and things like that. So it's been a, it's been a huge joy yeah, to be great. doing this work out in society. And I, I just, I wish more people could have that experience like me. Yes. Well, I think that's a good encouragement. If you're called to an area, whether it's creation care, I think of human trafficking a lot, because here we're you know, on I-35, it's a corridor of Mexico to Canada, and there's always a lot going on. Whatever it is you're called to, uh, represent Christ in that area and work with uh, work with others that he's made available for you to get to know, build partnerships. Uh, uh, I know that's so much a part of what Arasha does, what you're about, is building partnerships. So I, I really love that. Uh, ben, I, I wish we had a whole lot more time, but... Uh, you know, um, I invite you now to come back and we'll we'll focus on a couple of issues maybe and, and think about them. But in a summary statement, what, what would you like for our audience to know about or think about or just take away from, from our time together in terms of Christians and creation care? Cool. Well, thanks for having me, Larry, and I'd love to come back sometime. I uh, we talked about a lot. Summarizing it is going to be hard, but I think what what I keep coming back to in this work is that is that we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in the world of today, that's struggling with so many social and environmental problems, caring for God's creation is, I, it's just one of the best ways to do that. I think, so we can see it as a responsibility but we can also see it as an opportunity and a gift. We are the only species that gets to think about these things, that gets to care about them the way that we get to care about them. God made us unique out of all the rest of creation. Let's yeah. live into that. Let's embrace that uniqueness to do the work that God has given us to do. And let's find incredible joy in the relationship we can have with God's world and with the Creator and each other. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, that's, and that's an important point. God put us first in a sense, but that first has responsibility. Freedom has responsibility. And he gave us dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field. And dominion is really taking care of them, not just using it for our own good, isn't it? So Yeah, I think, you know, Christ should be our model in all of these things. And, and it's very clear the model that Christ sets for us as one of sacrificial love and service and humility. Yes. Well, Ben, thank you. Thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, and it's been very informative. And uh, again, his, the ministry that he is the board chair of is Arasha, and that's spelled A-R-O-C-H-A. And if you put it in, I think you'll find a lot of interesting things because Arasha will take you to Africa and Portugal and a, a ranch in Texas and just projects all over the world doing good things. So I'll, uh, I'll close our time, Ben, with saying that Eugene Peterson wrote about your book, The Christian Youth of America Are Making Their Mark in a Genesis and Jesus-Based Commitment to Creation Conservation. 
His witness, that, that's Ben's witness and invitation, seeth with hope and energy. Listen to him, join him. And that's what I think I would, I would just give as a call today. Let's join with Ben and others uh, who are working to restore God's creation, to care for people, to build relationship and build community, honoring God while we do it. So thank you, Ben. So to, to our audience, thank, thank you. you for being with us today. Uh, we appreciate you joining us for Hill Country Institute Live. These conversations with Christian leaders are uh, hopefully and intended to enrich our lives and help us to speak for Christ in the environments where we find ourselves. I'm Larry Lennon-Schmidt, your host. I'm the Executive Director of the Hill Country Institute, and we really do appreciate you making time to be with us. We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to hear past programs and to experience audio and video from our past conferences on faith and culture issues, including business, education, moral courage, technology, and more. And you can also listen to this program and past programs on your podcast app at Hill Country Institute Live. We also ask for your consideration in supporting this program and the ministry of Hill Country Institute. The radio stations like to be paid. That's just uh, the way it works. So you can donate online at hillcountryinstitute.org or you can call us at 512-680-7993. That's 512-680-7993. We appreciate your help in staying on the air and continuing our ministry. Thank you again for being with us. And remember, wherever God calls you, share the heart, mind, and love of Jesus.